In review, as we turn to Ruth chapter 4, as we conclude the series today, just to give you a summary of each chapter for those who might not have been with us or might not have tuned in online, a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi leave Bethlehem, the city of their nativity, in a time of famine. They take their two sons and they go to dwell in a land called Moab. As they're in Moab for a period of a decade, first, Elimelech dies. And then their two boys that had taken wives of the Moabites, Moabitesses, as they are referred to, Orpah and Ruth, these two young men die, and it leaves Naomi alone in this strange land with her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi is very bitter, she's very hurt, she's very scarred by that, and she sends these two women back to their homes. She says, go back to your mothers, go back to your lands, go back to your family. I'm returning to Bethlehem. Thank you for being the type of person that you were, but now we, we part ways. And Ruth, as you know, Orpah goes back to idolatry and back to her family. Ruth says, no, I'm not leaving you. Your kindred is my kindred. Your God is my God. Your land is my land. Your home is my home. Until death do us part, we will be together. And so Ruth cleaves to Naomi. They return back to Bethlehem together. Naomi arrives, and people say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. In chapter 2, back in Bethlehem, Ruth goes to glean a field so she and Naomi can eat. You know, as a part of the law, we discussed this. They were not allowed to glean the corners of their fields. They were to leave the produce in the corners of their fields so the poor, the fatherless, the widows, and the strangers could go to that field and have an opportunity to eat. And this was the way that God provided for the downcast by law when God designed the law of the constitution of a nation. When God established a nation in the world, when he had a theocracy, there were provisions in it for the poor. In chapter 3, or rather in chapter 2, as Ruth is in the field, she catches the eye of Boaz. He notices her. He says, who is this damsel? And when he finds out who she is, her reputation preceded her. He had heard of the things that she had done for Naomi, her mother-in-law, even though she could have gone back to her home, Boaz takes very special care of her. Remember, he tells the young men, do not lay a finger on her. Do not harm her. Do not abuse her in any way. And then he tells them, leave handfuls of purpose for her. And he tells her, you take anything that you want. You don't go to any other field, but you just join in with my maidens and you just go and you, you glean all that you can carry back to your mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz is a very godly man. One of the things that we've emphasized in every chapter as we've studied this book together is how all of these three people are so charitable and kind and godly and how this is the way we should be in the world and how much better the world is when everyone is this way. In chapter 3, Ruth, at the advising of Naomi, Naomi schemes a way to win Boaz over, as it were, so that Boaz would be inclined to redeem Ruth, as it were, and raise up offspring for Naomi's deceased son. And so Ruth comes to Boaz by night after he ate, after he drank. She uncovers his feet as he's asleep. She lays herself down. It wakes him up at midnight. His feet are cold. He sees her. 
He is terrified, and she springs this proposition on him to redeem her. You remember that the term for that is a ga'al, or as it's commonly referred to in English, a goel, a near kinsman redeemer, a goel. Boaz agrees to do this. He's humbled at her proposition. He blesses her and commends her humility and her giving spirit, her kindness being as great or more in the latter end than it was throughout her life because she didn't go to a young man or a person of her own kindred or any other such as that, but she went to that particular near kinsman as a way to bless her deceased husband and her mother-in-law. Boaz agrees to this. And at the conclusion of chapter 3, as we read last week, Boaz is going to take care of this the next day. Now, before looking at the context of what we consider today, as we studied far more deeply last week than we will today, if you were not here, that message is online, the concept of a near kinsman redeemer, we're looking at things that to us as Americans, as Westerners, these concepts are foreign to us. Could you imagine the concept being practiced today of someone raising up offspring for their deceased loved one. That is as foreign to us today as any other concept from the Word of God. It's simply not something that we would fathom, that we would do. It would not even be considered morally right to us in today's time to do that. And yet that was something that God commanded in the Old Testament. He gave provision for that in the Old Testament. Now while we consider today the concept of Ruth being redeemed... This being so foreign to us, one of the points that I wanted to convey to you today is God, through interacting with these systems that are foreign to us, communicated the gospel, his gospel, to humanity. And so this concept of a near kinsman redeemer, a near kinsman redeeming a widow and raising up offspring to the deceased kinsman is as foreign as this is to us, God communicated his gospel through this action and through that law. God does this in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, just to rattle off a few. In today's time, we rightly consider the concept of slavery to be morally reprehensible. Amen? And the Word of God condemns what the early United States knew as slavery because the Word of God condemns men stealing. In other words, human trafficking is sinful. God's word condemns men stealing, kidnapping someone, forcing them into servitude. Now, there were forms of servitude in the Bible that was permitted but regulated. And if, for instance, I borrowed money from MasterCard and I couldn't pay MasterCard back. By the way, I don't borrow money from MasterCard. I don't borrow money from Visa I do have a car note that I pay off this year, but the interest was so low it was just easy to do, and I could pay it off, but I don't. I try not to borrow money, but let's say I borrow money and I couldn't pay it back. I then became the servant of MasterCard or Visa until I paid that money back. And so let's say I borrow money from Brother Hewlin and I can't pay it back. I now have to work off the debt that I owe him as a servant. Some people volunteered to be a servant in that day because to live with a kind person whom you served in that form was better for many people than starvation. Starvation was a real threat to people in the world in that day. 
Some people became servants because they lost war. And when they lost war, they had to become the servants of the people that they went to war with. The world was a cruel place back then. You can read where Israel and Judah were the servants of Babylon and then the Medo-Persians in the book of Daniel. Scripture many times doesn't outright abolish these practices initially. But God gives laws that govern them and regulate them, and in the laws, he actually communicates to us, through the working out of his principles, gospel messages. Think about the form of how being a servant to a master might convey to someone the gospel message in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. We were the servants of sin. Sin was our master. We belonged to sin. Jesus buys us from sin, which brings in other metaphors in the, Old, in the New Testament that were in the Old Testament, such as sacrifice and offering and blood offering and burnt offering. Jesus buys us from the old master, and so now we are servants again, but this time... Instead of being a servant to a wicked, evil master, a cruel master, a master that slays us and harms us and destroys us, we are the servants of Christ who loves us and cares for us and even frees us as we have liberty in Christ. We find glimpses of our relationship with Jesus and the laws on being a servant. In fact, in the New Testament, servants were to obey their masters as unto the Lord. In the book of Philemon, you actually read of an escaped servant who owed a debt to a man. This servant's name is Onesimus, who belonged to a man, was serving a debt to a man named Philemon, and he escapes. He's converted. Paul sends him back to make it right, and in the letter sending him back, he goes as far as to say, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. I trust you will receive him now, not as a servant, but as a brother. And in the book of Philemon, we can see glimpses as to how the Word of God actually eradicates the concept of things such as slavery, because how could one brother own another brother in Christ? We see how the Word of God, through putting into practice the gospel, eradicates these institutions that were not as appropriate. There were several other types of governance in the Old Testament where God gives us glimpses into his gospel. Think about the laws on marriage. Scripture uses that metaphor of marriage to describe our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A marriage is binding, and in the sight of God, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now you think about, for just a moment, how... God joined together the bride of Christ with Jesus even before the foundation of the world in election, in the covenant of grace. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. You see how that institution and God's governance of it, of course he instituted it, reveals for us, preaches to us through the carrying it out, it preaches his gospel to us. God interacts with these systems. He regulates them. He governs them. And in doing so, he communicates his gospel to us. 
how would this story communicate the gospel to us? God regulates near kinsman redemption. This is an idea that he instituted in Israel. This was something that was in the law. We'll look at that law again today. What is God communicating to ancient Israel about the coming of his son into the world? That we stand in need of redemption and that redemption has to be purchased. And Jesus purchased redemption for us, not with money, not by the vain conversation of tradition received from the fathers, but Jesus redeemed us by his blood. The laws concerning near kinsman redemption preach the gospel to ancient Israel. Jesus says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but they are they which testify of me. All of these laws that we read are a shadow of good things to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus communicated his gospel to us through the laws on near kinsman redemption. Think about the laws of sacrifices. Jesus was a sacrifice. Think about the laws of the priesthood. Jesus was a priest. Think about the laws of the tabernacle. You are the temple of God. Think about the laws of the Ark of the Covenant on which is the mercy seat. Inside the law that we broke, God revealing himself above it, vertically looking down at it. What stands between us and the broken law is the mercy seat. The word mercy seat comes into the English language in the New Testament as the word propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation, our appeasement, our atonement. God preaches the gospel of Christ through the laws of the Old Testament, which is why it's so crucial for us to study them. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. I get lost in this, all of these meticulous laws, and they are meticulous. But all of those laws and all of that genealogy is leading to the coming of Christ in the world, including what we're reading here about a near kinsman redeemer. So let's look at... Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. You remember in the previous chapter, Boaz tells Ruth, you have one kinsman that is more near than I. And what that meant was, genetically, relationally, there's one relative, male relative, who is close more closely related to Naomi than I am. And so the legal right falls to him before it falls to me. There are legal loops, if you will, that you have to jump through, hoops that you have to jump through, and you have to make sure that you're doing everything legally and right. By the way, justice, to do something right, the root of justice is just, and just is synonymous with Righteous, the root of righteousness, is right. And there's a lot of talk in the world today about justice. And I want you to understand that there is no justice without righteousness. Amen. And so when people want to talk about justice, I want to talk about righteousness because justice is just. Righteousness is right. And anything contrary to this word cannot be justice. Justice. There's going to be justice here. It's going to be just. It's going to be right. And since it is just and since it is right, it's going to be righteous the way that they deal with this matter. 
Boaz says, you got one that is more near than I am to you in terms of kinship. And so Boaz, this next day, he wakes up early. I imagine he's excited. Beautiful young lady who's righteous and godly, wants to endeavor in this and invoke this near kinsman privilege that involves so much sacrifice as well. First thing in the morning, and as Naomi says the day before, the chapter before, he's not going to rest until he has finished the thing this day. Chapter 3 and verse 18. He's going to take care of this immediately. Boaz went to the gate. I'm going to comment on that in a minute. He sat himself down, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one. This man walks by. Boaz knows him. Bethlehem is a little town. It's not a very big town. She's little among the nations. Boaz sees him coming in and out of the gate, and he says, You, sir, wait. Ho, such a one. Turn aside. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. Boaz, basically at the gate, tells him that we have an issue that we need to discuss. Notice what Boaz does. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Now Boaz comes to the gate. Gates were significant places in the ancient world. We don't have a gate in Huntsville. I don't even live in a gated community. Some of you might live in a gated community. I don't even live in a gated community. You can just wander in and out of there as you please. But gates were very significant in the ancient world. Gates were entryways at a perimeter wall. What was the perimeter wall there for? It kept people out of the city who didn't need to be there. It kept militaries out of the city that you didn't want there. It even kept animals out of the city that you didn't want there. Imagine if you're in the Middle East... In the Old Testament, you have all of these lions and jackals and serpents and all of these fierce creatures that you do not want to be around and you have no wall around the city and they roam into the outskirts and begin to pick apart your livestock or attack your children or things such as that. So you have walls. These keep out enemies and the way that you got in and out of the city many times was through the gate. Inside of a gate, within the gate, there was protection. The wall, the perimeter, it symbolizes safety. You're inside the walls. You're inside the gates. Outside of the gates oftentimes meant vulnerability and danger. Exclusion from within the city. There were people who were put out of the camp of Israel for various reasons, leprosy being one of them. Outside, being excluded from the city, you have danger, you have trouble, you have enemies, you have robbers, you have animals that could harm you. There was great safety in the gate. There was great danger outside of the gate. As people would pass in and out of the city, as they took part in their commerce, perhaps they had a parcel that's outside of the city, they go to work it, they come back, you go in, you go out. It's a place where everyone bottlenecked, as it were. Think about if you're all going to Walmart or the DMV or a place that everyone goes and everyone has to mingle, and we're all self-conscious of that right now, right? You're having to mingle people. It's like, hey, back up, bro. I love you, but six feet, please. 
nothing like being standing at a store and you're doing all your responsibility to to stay safe and socially distance and somebody just comes right here and the next thing you know why is your face eight inches from me go away they bottleneck there at a gate everyone's coming in and going out you see people it's a place where and this will come into the narrative today there are many many witnesses because of the nature of gates in the Old Testament, in the, in the old days, gates were also common places of judgment. Gates were places where kings would issue their edicts publicly so people could hear them because that's where the people simply were. There were times, as you read here with Boaz, that councils of men would be gathered together to pursue justice and judgment. You have people that are gathered together to hear a matter. Maybe someone's going to be put on trial. Where would you take them? You would take them to the gate. You'd take them to the gate. I'll give you examples of this in a moment. Legal proceedings took place in the gate of the city. Legal proceedings. Even in the Old Testament, in the law that God gave, there were a few times where God instructed to settle matters, legal matters, in the gate of the city, at the gate of the city. I was reading about some that they've uncovered in the city of Dan, in the region of Dan, I should say. There's actually a gate that has been dug up by archaeologists, and at the gate, there was a place where there was a canopy... And there at the canopy was a tall pillar, and some archaeologists believe that it was an idol erected to a false god. But many archaeologists believe that it's a place where someone would stand, perhaps a king or another authority figure, and preside over the legal matters and issue the verdict that was to be given. In other words, sometimes when gates were built, there were even places where a judge or a king or a person of authority would stand and hear and proclaim the sentence that was to be issued. Remember that this is in the time period of what? Judges. It's time period of judges. Eventually, you'd have a king who would rule on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. David would have his palaces, but up until this point, you have the judges. And these cities had judges, and these judges would hear. Some people believe Boaz was a judge. It doesn't explicitly say that. Some people believe Boaz was even a judge. You notice that Boaz gathers these elders there at the gate. Court is going to be in session in just a moment. I'll give you a few examples of this just in the ancient world in the book of Genesis chapter 23. And I would encourage you to take a concordance this afternoon, this evening, spend a portion of your Lord's Day looking through some of the examples of gates in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, there are things that take, places, uh, that take place at the gates of the city. In the book of Genesis chapter 23, when Sarah dies and Abraham wants to obtain a place to bury her, he goes to the people of Heth and he meets them at the gate. And there at the gate, he asks for a parcel, this piece of land to bury his wife Sarah in. And so you have this one example, even all the way back in Genesis, of people attending to legal matters in the gate. And this would take place in front of many, many witnesses. He stands up, he bows himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. 
If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. Entreat for me to Ephraim, the son of Zohar, that he might give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it to me for a possession of a burying place. I want to buy it. He's not asking for it for free. Notice in verse 10, where does this take place? He says this, In the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of the city. There's a legal matter taking place at a gate. It's done in public. Now, I love the concept of justice being public in that day and age. Public justice discourages crime. Public justice discourages crime. Underhandedness. Backroom deals. People that are guilty getting off scot-free encourages crime. How do you know that? Because Ecclesiastes says that. Because justice is not carried out speedily upon the wicked. The hearts of men are set in them to do evil. And so justice should be carried out. Justice is a good thing. God commands justice. And injustice, in the various forms in which it takes place, encourages disobedience. We should be a society that demands law and order because that's how we lead quiet and peaceable lives. We need justice in the world. Injustice is an abomination to God. How do you know that? Because in the book of Proverbs, we read that a false balance is abomination to him. A false balance, in the old day you have these balancing scales, sometimes they're referred to as a scale and a balance, and you might have a product on one side and weights on the other, and you determined how much it was worth based upon how much it weighed. And some people would, let's say they would take a five-pound rock and write two pounds on it so they could rip people off and charge them more than it was worth. And God says that's an abomination. What is it? It's an injustice. Nearly universally on this planet, do you know what the symbol for justice is in justice departments? Scales and balance. That's even a thing in our world today. It's come to represent the concept of justice. And a false balance is an abomination unto God. Justice is carried out at the gates. Public justice in the sight of witnesses. When David had his scandal with Absalom, you know where he goes to discuss that, make proclamation about that after Absalom attempted insurrection and Absalom had been killed? You know where he goes? He goes to the gate. He goes to the gate of the city. 2 Samuel chapter 19. Verse, in chapter 18 and chapter 19, David and others go to the gate. Behold, the king doth sit in the gate, and all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. Israel, because of the insurrection and the potential of civil war, everyone runs to their tent. They run home. They're socially distancing. They're in quarantine. They're in isolation. And David gathers them all there together, at the gate, and he delivers an oration to them at the gate. Kings delivered orations at gates. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 5, I'll just give you a little taste of some of the expressions about gates, the gate of the city in Scripture. One of the many lamentations of Jeremiah is that the elders have ceased from the gate, the young men from their music. 
That latter part reminds me of our sad day and age in which we live in today when the young men have ceased from their music. You have no music, you have no entertainment, you have no concerts, you have no joy in life. It's a very humbling time in American history, and that ought to be our response is to be humbled, not obstinate or angry or divided or proud or any other response, but we ought to be humbled by that because, mark my word, God is humbling us. In just about every way that a society can be humbled, we're being humbled right now. And we ought to look around and say, hey, you know, maybe God is communicating to us. So how, how do you mean? I don't know. A pandemic and economic collapse, violence in the street, political scandal, and then a giant cloud of dust from the continent of Africa that bothers all of our sinuses and clouds the sky. I, I, I'm waiting for the locusts. I'm waiting for the locusts. Does it start hailing on us and, and maybe add a little Hollywood embellishment where the hail bursts into flames when it hits the ground? I don't know. We've already had murder hornets. Maybe the murder hornets are a part of the equation. We ought to be humbled. But Jeremiah laments that in their captivity, this is written in Babylon, the elders have ceased from the gate. There's no justice. There's no carrying out of the law of God. The elders have ceased from the gate. And you notice that it is the elders in Boaz's story here in Lamentations 5. The elders meet in the gate. They're the authority figures. They're the ones who should have wisdom and life experience and experience with the word of God. Is it any reason then that when the word of God gives the preachers a title in the New Testament, what word do they choose? Choose the word elder. Because that's the role from ancient Israel life that comes into the New Testament of authority and leadership. That's what God intends for the pastorate. It's a position of authority. And so scripture would say to obey them that have the rule over us. And when he says that, he says it regarding elders. In the book of Amos chapter 5, minor prophet Amos, Amos talks about the he encourages that there would be judgment in the gate. Judgment is a word that is synonymous with the word justice. In Amos chapter 5, I believe verse 15, Hate the evil, love the good, establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Hate the evil, love the good, establish judgment in the gate. You know what? I didn't intend on saying this. Make that your memory verse for American life right now. Hate the evil, love the good, establish judgment or justice in the gate. Hate evil, love good, establish justice or judgment. God is a God of justice and judgment. But notice where judgment is to be pursued. In where? In the gate. There are dozens of references to justice in the gate, in the gate, in the purpose of the gate. In the Old Testament, it would be a great study for you to engage in. Back to the book of Ruth. Notice in chapter 4, Boaz gathers the man who had the right of redemption legally and ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. He gathers a council of men to pursue this legal transaction, this proceeding here in the gate. He said unto the kinsman, Naomi, he's going to begin talking to him. Here's the proposition. We're going to get to business. 
Naomi that is come out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee to tell you to let you know, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And the man says, I will redeem it. At this point, the man is interested. Why? Because Boaz says there's a parcel of land you can buy from Naomi. And it's available. You can get it. you got the right. Now, you might be wondering, why would you want to go to a relative and say, buy this land? If you're selling land in this day and age, how many times have you bought or sold land and you thought, I want to sell this to a relative? I've got a parcel of land, family land down in St. Clair County, and so this makes a little more sense to me because I'm never selling it. Why am I never selling it? Because it's next door to my parents, and the back part of the property connects with my grandfather's property, and there's a little triangular lot cut out between my grandfather's property and my property. Why wouldn't I get rid of that land? Because it's family land. In the nation of Israel, their inheritance that they got, Canaan's land is something that God gave them in entering in Canaan's land that was to be passed down to their children and their children and their children and their children all the way to the time of Christ. And so this is a sake of their national identity, land being multi-generational. And we also, as we studied last week, saw the importance of a name continuing in Israel, which is why we have these near kinsman redeemer laws. So you see how important that is. You want this land to stay in the family. Now, if I sell the land at 113, I'm not going to give you my, there's a camera. I'm not going to give you my street address. Filter is slow today. I'm not going to bother, I'm not going to worry about selling the land that I live on today if I wanted to move, and Rachel's wanted to move every year that we've ever gotten anywhere. About two years later, she finds a bigger, nicer house she wants. And she makes fun of me, no, I'm not going to buy the house. So she eventually gave up and started making our house like she wanted it. I wouldn't wink at selling that house as it relates to inheritance and family because I wasn't raised on that land. But to Israel, that was so important to them, so important to them. Boaz says there's a parcel of land, tract of land, piece of property, You have the right to redeem it. Do you want to redeem it near kinsman? You might wonder what his name is, and the book of Ruth doesn't tell you. It's immaterial for our purposes. The man says, I want it. Boaz says, what day thou buyest the field? Here's the fine print. This is the, uh, the stuff that we don't read at the bottom of the contract. The man's excited. Yeah, I want the land. But if you buy it from the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. If you buy this land from Naomi, you have have to also buy it from Ruth. Both of these women are widows. And when you buy it from her, you have to raise up children to her deceased husband. This is where the near kinsman begins to back away slowly. Now, wait a minute. 
I don't want, I don't want uh, another female here, and I certainly don't want to have to raise up offspring for another man. I'd be getting this field, and my family wouldn't even be inheriting the field. The man says, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So this man says, if I were to buy this, I would be tending to this field and working this field, but I can't even pass it on. It would mar my inheritance. This offspring, whatever offspring that I have with Ruth, it would be a child that was carrying on her deceased husband's name. And we talked about those laws last week, if you're unfamiliar with that. I don't want to engage in this deal. I defer to you. I love how conniving Boaz seems to be in this. He gets the man excited, then he gives him the fine print. The man says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. On second thought, on second thought. And so this man, notice in verse 7, this was the manner in the former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to the neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Imagine if we settled legal disputes by giving someone a shoe. It's implied that the shoe is retained. Can you imagine the man coming back to Boaz 10 years later saying, you know what, I changed my mind, I want the land. Boaz says, hey, bro, I got your shoe. You forfeited the right when you gave me the shoe. Now, that wasn't actually a particular law, but it likely developed from an actual law that God gave Israel. I want to turn over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, and you'll notice a very similar thing that is probably where this law came from. This law doesn't actually apply to the circumstance. It's close, but it doesn't apply to it. If brethren dwell together and one of them die, we looked at this last week, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her. And take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And what that means is to raise up offspring so the deceased husband's name continues. Now we talked about how important that is last week, because this was a nation in which their lineage and genealogy was to continue all the way until the time of Christ, even those laws are pointing to Christ coming into the world, fulfilling the promise that God gave Abraham that through his seed would all nations of the earth be blessed. It's important. It's important. It isn't immaterial. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead. Not all of them, just the firstborn. That his name be not put out of Israel. Now, by the way, by the way, that little detail foreshadows the preservation we have in Christ, even unto glorification in the resurrection. Your name will not be put out of Israel. You'll be with God in glory. You never knew mundane laws could so richly show Christ, did you? Your name won't be put out of Israel. God is communicating his gospel through working within these strange foreign systems in early mankind. 
What happens if the man doesn't want to do this? This is interesting. If the man liked not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate. Where? To the gate. To the elders. And say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. The elders of the city shall call him and speak it unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, loose his shoe from his foot, and spit in his face. That's justice we can believe in. Take off his shoe and spit in his face. So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And... His name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. So you refer to him from that day forward, the man who has his shoe loosed. You can laugh at that. I laughed at that this week because I read it again and thought about it and studied it. The case of Ruth doesn't seem to necessarily be that exact situation, and it never says anything about Ruth spitting in his face. But the man takes his shoe off. It was the custom in that day that if you didn't want to redeem it and you deferred to another redeemer, that you take your shoe off and you hand it to him. More than likely it developed in this particular circumstance from that actual law. So he takes off his shoe. He gives it to Boaz. Boaz said unto the elders and unto the people, You're all witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Chilion's and Mahlon's of the hand of Naomi. I've bought all of that from whom? From Naomi and Ruth. Remember, it's for sale at the hand of Naomi. This wasn't some sort of hostage situation where you go and you take it from them. Remember, Boaz says, Naomi is selling this. You have to buy it from her. Moreover, Ruth and Mo- uh, the Moabitess... The wife of Mahlon, I've purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Now the word witness is there. Witness is very important because what do you have in a court? What do you have in a marriage? What do you have in a legal contract? You have witnesses that sign and attest to the legal proceedings. This is why many times justice was carried out in the gate, because there was no shortage of witnesses. We have witnesses today, and we have special witnesses, notaries. But in this day, you would perform this in the gate, because in the gate there were witnesses. And he says, I have said this among these many witnesses that can attest to the authenticity, the legitimacy of that which has taken place. The people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is coming to thine house like Rachel and Leah. Now this is a blessing. The witnesses say this to issue a blessing on Ruth. What a, what a godly woman this was. You remember all the details of her life and how godly she was and faithful she was and believing she was. The Lord make the woman that is coming to thy house like Rachel and Leah. which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. 
Now, if you know the rest of the story of this woman's children, one in particular, you know that this isn't merely a blessing, but a prophecy. Because the Lord did make her like Rachel and Leah. Women who brought into being the patriarchs. Which great man of Israel came from the womb, as it were, of this woman Ruth? A Gentile Moabite named Ruth. David himself. And through David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. God made her famous in the entire world. Here she is in his word. Let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which, is, which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. This concludes the legal proceeding. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. She has a son. Naomi, the woman said unto, women said unto Naomi, I want you to notice what the women said about Ruth to Naomi. And just to remind you of how dreadful of a state Naomi was in, just chapters earlier in chapter 1. Remind you of those words. Let's read them together. Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, the Lord brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Listen to how these women encourage Naomi. Now she had a, she had a terrible circumstance in her life. It was awful, but God gave beauty for ashes like he so many times does. The women of this town speak to Naomi and they say, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And it shall be unto thee a restorer. He shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, listen to this, is better to thee than seven sons hath borne him. In other words, when this woman, Ruth, had, these, had this child that we know is, look here at the, the generations of it, Obed, Boaz begat Obed, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. Obed will be a strength to you. He's going to care for you. In that day, you were provided for in old age by your young children. There was no social security. There were no retirement villages. There were no retirement homes that you live off the nest egg in. Your grandkids, your kids... They took care of you. It was the only thing that you could do. And a widow whose sons had died, they're left to themselves. And they're afflicted, which is why God gives them provision in the law. He'll be to you, may he be to you, 
a strength, a restorer, a nourisher of thine old age. And this woman that has birthed him, think about the encouragement here. You had two sons, but this woman, Ruth, has been better to you than seven sons could be. By the way, the biblical number of completion is seven. They're they're conveying to her, doesn't matter how many good sons you have, this woman, Ruth, has been infinitely better to you than any son could be. Sometimes we don't know what's going on in the world. Naomi had some terrible things happen to her in her life, but God provided for her in ways that she could never imagine through giving her Ruth. She had Ruth all along. And she didn't understand the blessing that God had given. God even provided for her in the midst of the affliction. Even in the midst of the affliction. These women praise her. They encourage her. The story that began with so much trouble ends with such a happy ending. We close with the simple genealogy. Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David, the king of Israel, upon whose throne our Lord Jesus sits on today. In the book of Matthew chapter 1 and in the book of Luke chapter 3, in both of those places we find the genealogy of Jesus in an adopted legal sense and in a biological sense through Mary, traced through David, who was the son of Jesse, who was the son of Obed. In all that we read, as encouraging as it is, the greatest thing to note in this book of Ruth is that through the tragedy, through the calamity, God was working not only to deliver this woman in her life from the afflictions that were so terrible, but God was working out his purpose to bring his son Jesus into the world to redeem not just a woman who had no offspring, to raise up offspring to a departed husband, but God was working to bring his son into the world to redeem us from our sins.